0: This show is part of the Stuff Podcast Network.
1: Hello and welcome to Basically. I'm your host, Stephanie Preisner, And today we have an interesting episode for you. Today I'm speaking to Grace, who is from a non-profit organisation, that deals with mental health called Let's Get Talking and they provide counselling and psychotherapy on a non-set fee model which is really important it means that like no one is excluded from accessing support because of their financial circumstances. They kind of focus on early intervention and they support adults and children over 10 years of age uh, across all mental health issues but one of the things that I wanted to talk to today that we haven't covered yet was supporting clients who have addiction issues. So Grace I I guess i You can take it from here. Uh, Do you want to tell us a little bit about your expertise and what you do?
0: Yeah. um, Hi, Stephanie. Great to be on the podcast today. Um, Yes. So my name is Grace and I'm a psychotherapist and counsellor and I work with Let's Get Talking. And we cover a a wide range of issues. So I'm here to talk about addiction today, but I just want to put it out there that we also support people with a variety of issues such as anxiety, depression, eating disorders, Trauma, suicide, self-esteem, identity, um, family issues, relationship struggles, sex issues. So just pretty much across the board, any sort of mental health challenge that you're facing, mm-hmm. we have somebody who can support you with that. Um, my experience with addiction, I suppose, it's always been an interest of mine. Um, but a lot of my experience would come from I would have worked with a center, a rehabilitation treatment center in County Clare that um, does residential treatment programs and following the five-week program for people with gambling, alcohol and drug addictions, they would be encouraged to attend a weekly aftercare group for two years and that's to help their continued recovery from their substance or addictive behavior of choice. So I took on the role as a co-facilitator in that group and the group would range from say 10 to 15 people a week who would not only be in recovery from their addiction, but would be maybe a spouse of somebody in addiction recovery. Um, So that was just an amazing experience for me because it really opened me up to what it's like, not just as someone recovering from addiction, but in maintaining a recovery with the day-to-day challenges that people face. Um, I then became avidly interested in reading about it. I had for years before. um, So I suppose I'm probably 12 years with experience in the field. But my most recent experience would have been through that treatment centre and my role as co-facilitator.
1: I guess people kind of mostly know addiction through things like, you know, things that are highly covered in media and and entertainment, like drug addiction or alcohol abuse. Um, But I'm sort of interested in, you know, there's sort of like substance addictions, which are things where you're addicted to a substance. But then there's also like behaviour addictions or, or process addictions. What do you see as sort of like? Are they managed differently, or or how do those things manifest?
0: Yeah, and I I agree with you, Stephanie. I'm all, I'm very curious about those too because I think that there's a lot of information out there around substance addictions, but not so much process, even though they're becoming um more and more prevalent in in across the world, really. Um, so I suppose you know theoretically we would say that. All addictions are chemical in the sense that when somebody has an addiction, they are looking for a dopamine hit. So in that sense, they're all chemical. But in terms of what they look like, well, behavioral process addictions, what we're really talking about there is we're talking about gambling and um, we're talking about compulsive shopping or spending. We're talking about workaholism and um, social media use, uh, gaming, video gaming and um, can even be television, pornography sex addiction love addiction um and when i list that even the list of the process behavior addictions is so much longer than the chem- the substance addictions you yeah. know in a way it's it's surprising that there isn't more attention given to them
1: and like how how do you differentiate between like when something is an addiction or when like someone just likes watching netflix or someone just likes going to the bookies or someone just likes having sex like how when does it become an addiction And 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 kind of a problem.
0: And I think that's a really good question because a lot of people, I think, are asking themselves that after the pandemic because a lot of people have picked up crutches and they're wondering, do I have an addiction? How do I know? So I guess, you know, first of all, I would define addiction as any activity that a person finds some temporary pleasure or relief in that brings about negative consequences. And yet, despite them, they aren't quitting. So I suppose the negative consequences part, I guess they'd have to be significant. So generally we say negative consequences where it's either affecting a significant relationship in your life or your work life. And if it's significantly impacting them and you're still not stopping and you maybe have repeated attempts that you fail um, at stopping and quitting using that activity or substance, then that's a hallmark of addiction. Um, Other things to watch out for would be preoccupation so you know the amount of time that you spend thinking about it and um, be it that you're thinking about when you're next going to do it that you're planning or that you're recalling what it was like idealizing the last time you did it and um, tolerance so do you find that your use of it has progressed are you having to do it more are you looking for um, greater variety and um, a big part of addiction is novelty seeking so it's like you know It's not enough. It has to be more. Now I need a new fix. Now I need a a different type of it. Is there a more enhancing form I can get if that gives me a bigger hit? Um, Another hallmark would be that, you know, am I wanting to do it in a way that escapes how I feel? So if we're paying attention to, you know, our general day-to-day mood and how we're feeling, someone with an addiction will notice that they often feel quite disconnected from how they're feeling or most of their feelings are irritability, restlessness, um, usually when they're in withdrawal of not having the activity or the substance. So it's usually those feelings that drive them back into the use of it, which becomes a compulsive cycle.
1: Right. Okay. And like, I'm just kind of like, I, I can see how when you were listing off those things, how like a shopping addiction or a food addiction um you know, or even a sex addiction could be quite clear if you're like constantly thinking about it or, you know, oh, I'm going to go online tonight and I'm going to buy this. And, you know, I know I shouldn't, but I can't not. Those are very clear. How how does it work with workaholism?
0: Yeah, that's a good one, isn't it? Um, Workaholism is definitely one that goes under the radar, I think. And I suppose just to say on that, I really feel in our society there is socially acceptable addictions. And mm-hmm. there's ones that we sanction and criminalise, um, which in a way makes it harder for those ones to be recognised when we are validated for them. So workaholism, for example, if we link it to the fact that in the past year we're working remotely a lot more, you've got a great reliance on technology, and um, we've got it's so easy to
1: work all the time now. And I know friends of mine who are now working from home, who work eight, nine, ten o'clock into the evening, and it's. Sometimes it's like a cure for loneliness. Sometimes it's because Mm. they're praised an awful lot for it because little bits of praise that they would have got in the office, they now, like unless they show that they're working an awful lot, you know, they're they're getting something else from it by doing that extra work. And then some of them will say like, well, I'm not doing anything else or it has to get done. It's Mm. hard to see it as workaholism when it's praised so much or you get paid for doing it. Or how would you identify Mm. if it is a problem if... Is it about how it affects your other relationships or?
0: Yeah, yeah. And it's a really good question. I think there's a few different ways of recognizing it. So I suppose uh, one thing can be overcommitting. So sometimes when somebody is in workaholic mode, they're kind of committing to things without even thinking about it. And so it's almost like there's a compulsive need to say yes to things as in to I'm going to take on that project and not really sit down and think about, okay, well, do I actually have the time to do that? Do I have boundaries around my working week? You know, um, no matter what profession we work in, whether we're self-employed or we work for somebody else, it's important to have work boundaries. So if you find that we either don't have them or we're overriding them and over committing to tasks without sitting down and thinking about it, that can be a sign that we're actually responding from an emotional place rather than from, a, I suppose, a logical, uh, if you like, work brain where we're thinking about work smart, you know, okay. so... We're coming from an emotional place, and we're just saying yes. It's like, okay, well, hold on a minute now. Why did I say yes to that? I mean, where is that coming from? Because is that me working? Because I need to work, and I get something out of this imbalance, or is that coming from a place of trying to fulfill a different need? Because that's not really maybe then about work needs. That's maybe about, as you said, I'm feeling a void, of loneliness. I don't want to have to sit with myself. Uh, this is giving me a fix. I want more of that. Um, I don't want to sit with the boredom of my life because maybe during the pandemic, for example, that's a really good example of a time where workaholism kicked in for a lot of people.
1: So using work to compensate for the difficulties in life or the struggles that that we don't want to face. So we'll just cover it up with work so we don't have to look at it.
0: Yeah. And, you know, when we if we find ourselves like going around compulsively busy, That can be a sign of workaholism if we look a little bit deeper. I'm not saying that in and of itself, that means you're a workaholic, but, you know, sometimes workaholic tendencies, they're not always specifically related to work. So, you know, if I, if, for example, I'm saying I'm a workaholic, I might be very active in my work life, but I might also be volunteering for a number of things. I might also be um, the person who is putting myself forward for all sorts of community projects. So workaholism, if you like, comes back to compulsive activity. And in a way, it's often linked to a sense of purpose and a sense of maybe status, if that's part of it. But it can be a way to avoid being with ourselves, building our relationship with ourselves. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think just one other sign can be, you know, how do I feel when I'm not doing something? Am I able to sit with myself or do I feel like I need to get up and do something? Because if you like, workaholism is kind of like compulsive doing.
1: Yeah, that's it's kind of confronting as you say it now because I sometimes feel like, like I think a lot of people would describe me as a workaholic. I do have other experiences and I am, you know, I I am def, I definitely identify as an addict and I have, you know, um, addressed those issues and I work different programmes to, to, to manage mm-hmm. those. But the workaholism thing is like I think that people, I identify so much with what I do that if I'm not doing something, like mm-hmm. I, I identify with like my identity is the things that I am doing rather than just the person that I am. And I find it really difficult to just be because I am mm. like when people say like, oh, who's Stephanie Prisner, It's like, oh, she's a she's a writer or she's a podcaster or she's the things that I do. So I don't know how. And I think that's really relatable, right? It's like mm. when people say who is X, Y or Z, people generally tend to identify people as the things that they do. Yeah, you're or, so right. And so, so if you right. take that away from me, I don't have an identity. So when I'm not working in the evenings, like I don't particularly like, you know, people say like what do you do to relax or my therapist will say like what do you do to rest? I don't particularly like resting. I don't like watching Netflix. I don't like being idle. I don't like, you know, sometimes I like a puzzle or I like something that I'm that I can do, but I don't I find it very difficult to just be, to just sit and exist. My my mind is too active. And that's really so it's nice to be to be busy so that I don't have to deal with all of that stuff. But then now we're kind of pathologizing that and I feel like, oh, I need to get better at just being by myself and doing nothing. But is there something wrong with always wanting to 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 be active? Like life is short. I don't want to sit around all the time.
0: No, and I, I really hear you. And, you know, I think you you actually highlight very well there maybe perhaps a problematic message that's out there around this, that, you know, that the only, that maybe the opposite or the balancing act um, away from workaholism is sitting with yourself and just being and, you know, doing nothing. Um, As you said, you know, I mean, life is short, as you said, who wants to necessarily be doing that? So, you know, I suppose I put in the point that workaholism or, you know, trying to get balance in your life away from doing doesn't necessarily mean not doing. Because if you like, that's the other side of it. Mm-hmm. So I think it's like you know what I'm maybe picking up from you is that you maybe you know when when we're in workaholic tendencies, maybe we're someone who has a need for a high level of stimulation, and there's nothing wrong with that. So you know that person mightn't want to spend their evening watching Netflix or sitting and meditating. Fine, maybe they want to watch an engaging documentary. It's somewhere in between. So it's like I'm resting, I'm relaxing, but I'm enjoying this because there's a bit of substance to it. So it's still, you know, using a part of me and I'm taking in something and I'm learning. I wouldn't see that as workaholism. You're still engaging yourself, but maybe you're engaging yourself differently. So it's, I suppose, it's trying to engage different parts of us and it's perhaps the energy that we bring to it too. So for example, if I'm in a workaholic um, lifestyle, I'm not leaving any space between anything. Okay I'm often um taking on too much at once. I suppose if I was working with somebody who was recovering from workaholism or wanted to work on, you know, even if we take away the label, if they feel like you know they've too much going on, what I'm saying is maybe start booking um days off for you in if someone's big into scheduling, for example, and they get a thrill out of having a full diary because I would have clients with that issue, for example, and then they're saying, they're emotional, they're up and down. They feel like there's no stability. You know, they they wish that they could just have a day where they do some things for themselves. So it's like, okay, can you schedule your a day in the week or half a day where you do that? Do whatever you want. And maybe what that person does is maybe they go for a run. Maybe after that, they're like, oh, I feel a bit tired. I'll take a break. 15 minutes later, they want to do something. Fine. Yeah. But it's just, it's. I suppose it's that thing of connecting in pacing, attuning, not because, I mean, if you like me sitting down, as you say, and watching Netflix, well, maybe that's not what your personality is into. So, you know, that's kind of a forceful thing to try, you know, to try to do that. But it's more about pacing oneself, having enough space in between things, taking a breather. And that way we can enjoy these things. But also, I suppose, again, if we look at work, you know, it depends on what a person's, um, workaholic forms if you like so if all my energy as a workaholic is going into paid work well then maybe I want to explore why do I feel the need to earn money all the time is it about earning money or is it about the doing Mm -hmm. so I guess what I'm saying is that there is no one size fits all it's always individual but there are certain characteristics across workaholism
1: okay So it's just about being kind of like intentional and knowing, yes, okay, I'm taking on this extra job, but I'm happy to do that because there is reason rather than just I'm going to do this because I don't know what else to do. And 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 it just feels like I need to to be busy all the time. Is that kind of what you're saying? Yeah,
0: exactly. Intentional, mindful. Um, But I, I always, you know, again, working with someone who maybe feels they give too much energy to to working or doing, it's like, okay, maybe let's map out nine areas of your life that are important to you and how can you make sure that they all get a look in this week or this month. Right, okay. Because sometimes people, you know, in recovery from that, they, they need to be able to have some sort of structure because they can find that they lose themselves maybe all in the work mode, say. So if they have a sense of, OK, what, how my relationships doing this week? Have I scheduled social time with my friends? Um, am I getting a bit of exercising because that's good for my head? Um, am I getting a little bit of recreational time, which I can fill in however I wish? So It's almost like sometimes they benefit from the structure of, it's almost like a checklist, but it's not meant to be, um, I suppose, It's not meant to be another to-do list, but it's meant to be sort of a way to just to check in with yourself. Am I taking care of the different goals and needs that I have in my life? Because I'm not just a doer. I'm an emotional person who has social needs. I'm a spiritual person, perhaps, that has maybe soul needs. Um, I'm an intellectual person, so maybe I have certain intellectual needs. um, And maybe I have some relationship needs in terms of intimacy with a certain person in my life. So... I suppose it's it's like having that kind of guide where you can check in with yourself and a bit of planning around it um, is a good way to move away from giving too much energy to one part of your life that maybe every so often when you're not active in those you kind of feel this sense of annoying feeling of I'm not really fully content with how I'm living my life you know that I think that's under often underlying compulsive busyness is this so, sort of inner sense of knowing or a knowing feeling of I feel like I'm using not all my is energy. Right here. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I'm do not you th-
1: really. Yeah. Do you think that um so if people are trying to identify that and they realize that actually they are somehow powerless over this, they have made the list and they want to do less work or they want to spend less money on online shopping or they want to drink less or they want to, you know, take painkillers less and they feel like actually I've made this decision for myself. I know I want to do it less. But I now find that that is beyond me. I can't do it even though I want to. Mm-hmm. And they identify that it is an addiction. How how do people live with addiction or what does recovery look like for people? How What does it involve?
0: Yeah, so I suppose, you know, as you said at the start, you know, we believe in an early intervention. So um, if you find, for example, like with your relationship with food or spending or work, um, sex, um, alcohol, drugs, any of them, The earlier, if you notice anything about it sooner, the sooner the better. Um, But I mean, the sooner the better, but that's not always the case. So I suppose the first step is admitting that you have a problem and doing that with somebody that you feel safe with. So if that's a good friend that you feel is non-judgmental or maybe has seen some of your behaviors and has maybe tried to talk to you about it, if you can admit that and have that conversation, that it's something that you do want to look at. Um, It may also be a therapist or it may be a support group. Some people are more comfortable going into a support group. When it comes to support groups, you do, of course, have the 12-step support groups. um, But there's also other options for people who are wary of the spiritual aspect of a 12-step program. So you've got SMART Recovery. That's an evidence-based scientific program. um, And that's very much built upon the concepts of cognitive behavioral therapy. So it very much looks at addiction as a series of distorted thoughts that um, have uh, have an impact on how you feel. And then you use certain behaviors compulsively to try to avoid those feelings. So that program um, lends itself well to someone who, who wants, I suppose, a sort of a guide because there's a facilitator in the smart recovery groups. So you feel like you're being led somewhat by a professional and a workbook. And you've also got Life Ring. And again, that's another alternative to 12-step programs. And that one isn't led by a facilitator. It's more peer support, but it is also evidence-based and they very much focus on looking at nine different life areas and how you can work on each of those to have a a balanced life in recovery. Then, of course, there are, you know, for more, um, so it's for people who feel really Hopeless that they they don't feel like maybe therapy is enough, and they need to really be immersed in what recovery looks like. They also maybe want somewhere that they can be kept away from their addictive substance or behavior of choice. So they will generally go to a residential treatment center, and they're typically five weeks, but they can also go extend up to twelve weeks depending on the center and the addiction. Um, and they're built upon uh, psychoeducation, group therapy one-to-one therapy. um, And I suppose they really equip you for life in recovery, where you kind of feel like, okay, I've been given what I needed now, I have a guide. And then they generally are followed up with aftercare support weekly. So you can now use um, what you've learned on a week-to-week basis with peer support. And it's a really important thing in recovery to look at not just the addictive behavior, but the rituals that you also engage in. Um, Because I suppose I'd very much work from the model that addiction isn't just the acting out, it's the preoccupation, the anticipation, the excitement, thinking about it. It's then the rituals you engage in. So the um, pre-activity, so for someone who's maybe addicted to alcohol, maybe they're thinking early in the day at work, I can't wait to go out tonight. I'm really excited. Oh, I'm having all the crack here with the girls at work thinking about it. Then they come out of work and they're, you know, taking all their time getting ready and, you know, uh, getting dressed up, doing the makeup, thinking about the night ahead. You know, so all of this is part of it. Maybe then they're downstairs having their pre-drink. Maybe they're making a fancy cocktail and they're enjoying getting that all together. And then they're actually going out and they're getting really drunk on their night out. I suppose if you like, there's a build-up there throughout the whole day. So when it comes to recovery, you're not just looking at the addictive behaviour, you're looking at the rituals, you're looking at the lifestyle that you live, you're looking at the people that you surround yourself with and the environments that you put yourself in.
1: And so like all of that has to change, or at least it's not just about not taking the drink. You have to also acknowledge that those other behaviours are leading to that and if you continue all that other stuff and just remove the alcohol, it's not really going to deal with the whole issue. Is that what you're saying?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Yes, that, you know, we're, we're not going to have a long-term recovery if we don't look at the big picture. And addiction doesn't happen in a vacuum. So, you know, how am I going to surround myself with supportive people? You know, what environments am I going to put myself in that I feel safe in that aren't going to be
1: triggering? That can be really hard, I think, particularly for young people. Like if if young people identify that they have a problem with, let's say, alcohol or drugs or food or whatever the situation is, that that it can be really difficult to then relate to your peer group. Like I remember I, what age are we, I'm just trying to do fast maths. I got sober at the age of 25 and Mm. that definitely had an impact like I had to do that but there, I, that had an impact on my peer group because you know it meant that like you were saying there like the build up it's not that you go to the nightclub and you just don't drink for me it meant I couldn't go to the nightclub right because I was so uncomfortable in those I had to realise that I was so uncomfortable in social situations that I had to be drunk to tolerate the loud noise the crowds the feeling of chaos that I just can't tolerate in my life and in order to to, like I can go to the nightclub but I have to be numb to go to the nightclub to tolerate all those things and I don't want to be numb anymore so I just can't go so now I don't go to situations where there are loud noises where there's crowds where people are drunk because I don't feel comfortable and I can totally do it if I'm drunk but I don't want to be drunk so I can't do that and for someone who's young who identifies actually I have I have a problem here and I need to address it one of the barriers can be oh but that's going to make me isolated because all my friends are doing it have you found that or
0: yeah absolutely yeah yeah
1: for me well like personally for me I found a whole new group of peers and I now hang out with people who are similar to me and who who Mm. don't do those things and there is a whole world out there of people who don't go to nightclubs every Saturday night and blah 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 now it's easier to see that in the pandemic but um I think that um when you're in it you can't really see that there is another way of living and that can be an obstacle
0: Absolutely, and, and I'm delighted to hear that you did find that because it's 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 not easy, and I I really agree with you that it's it's particularly hard for that age group. Um, addiction is hard for everybody, and recovery is hard for everybody. But I do think it's very hard at a young age, and um, and I think that the courage that it takes for somebody to come into recovery at that stage of their life is huge because of that as well, because they know that there may be this feeling of isolation or. You know that I suppose, if, for example, if you're a student in college and there's a, a big lifestyle that you've been living of partying, and um, you might feel like, as you say, that that's that's all gone to you now. But as you said too, you know, and and I think that's the nature of addiction. When you're in addiction, if you like, you're 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 not conscious that there are other ways of living and that there are other people out there that live a different life necessarily. Because if you like, I think even energetically on a vibration level you're attracting people like you. So your experience of life may be that there's only people out there who are going out drinking at the weekends or, you know, on the Tuesdays and Thursday nights during the college week, that that's all that people do is go out drinking. But that's not actually true, is it? You know, there are clubs and societies. There are actually a lot of people in college who go to those. And so there are people who are putting their energy into, if you like, healthy outlets. Um, And so it takes the time maybe to, if you like, the withdrawals of the addiction to pass and, you know, you starting to feel a bit more connected to yourself to be able to maybe see that there is a bigger world and that you can branch out and connect with those people and find your own tribe. And I suppose really recovery is about recovering your relationship with yourself and learning what it is you're actually interested in. So I suppose many people find with addiction, as it gets progressively worse, all their interests are surrounded by their substance or a behavior, addictive behavior of choice. But when you take that away, maybe people rediscover oh, what I used to love reading. And I remember when I was a kid, I used to want to be an actor. You know, mm-hmm. why did I never think about trying out drama or, you know, I love sea swimming or I love um, going to new places and traveling, but I was always spending my money on buying new clothes you know if I'm a compulsive spender or I was never able to save things because I was always out partying now I can actually go and experience new cultures and countries and you know so it's like it gives you a chance to develop interests and to develop interests we can then connect with people who are similar and and it just grows so I suppose there's a saying that just as addiction gets progressively worse recovery gets progressively better and I suppose I always say to clients who are who are moving away from an addictive lifestyle to just, you know, hang in there. Fake it till you make it. You are probably not going to feel great all the time. You will have a honeymoon period at the start. There probably will be a dip where you feel a bit like I'm going through the motions, but it will get better. And it's just about hanging in there and getting through that. And there is a better life for you that hopefully there's somebody around that person that they can see who's further on in recovery that gives them that sense of hopefulness
1: too. Yeah, I think peer support is a huge, like, uh, you know, I've heard people say like an addict alone is in bad company. Like we, uh, we are sensitive people and we need people around us who understand and who are, you know, they don't necessarily have to be exactly the same as us they don't have to also be addicts but you know people who are empathetic it's ideal if they are because they totally get it then but yeah. um, peer support is a huge thing because there are days obviously everyone has bad days um, mm. but you know so that those bad days don't send you back into into behaviours that are comforting because we know them because we know that short term gain is not long term gain and actually will just send us into places that we don't want to be Okay it's Jibs here from Pints of Malt <laughs> so our podcast is basically group of Irish-Nigerian lads who tell their stories, growing up in Ireland, as well as Nigeria, and we share our experiences with all of y'all. We also had a bit of, of comedy as well, you know, to get y'all laughing, get y'all through the week in these tough times that we are in. So y'all sit back and just, you know, enjoy the show. As Jib said, we're the Prince of Moth podcast. You can find us on all streaming platforms, including the Headspace Network how do you support like a loved one if you're a person who is in the orbit of someone who is either in addiction or in you know if you are concerned that you think someone oh I think they're you know gone into work holism I think they are have a gambling addiction I think they're drinking too much how do you support someone one who doesn't identify themselves as having an addiction and then two how do you identify someone who does identify it and wants to be in recovery
0: mm, yeah great question um, so I suppose maybe with the first one, um, where they don't identify with it, um, I think that, you know, empathetic, non-judgmental, if you have a good relationship with the person, you're a good person to have the conversation with them. And um, if you're not, so sometimes I know parents ask a sibling, will you will you have a chat with your sister? Because they get on well. But to, to try to ha- find a person or be the person that has a good relationship with the person with, who's struggling maybe with an addiction. And when you open up that conversation, I think because we're trying to stay away from labels because they don't identify with addiction, it's important to maybe just say what you're observing. And again, that's where the non-judgment part comes in. So it could be um, you start off just asking how they are or how their day has been. And maybe you're going for a walk because sideways contact can often be more comfortable for people than eye to eye because that feels quite intense. Um, And you might just say, you know. I've noticed that in the last few months you seem to be um really tied up with work and um, you know it seems to be really demanding and I've noticed it kind of it seems to affect your mood and um, you know I've kind of missed hanging out with you even you know um but how, how are you feeling about it or you know do you think that that's the case as well uh, have you noticed that you seem to be in your office a lot more or you know have you noticed that you seem to be out clubbing a lot more you know whatever it is? So it's kind of opening up the conversation um, because I suppose there's also a saying that, and I think this is the case for everybody, nobody likes being told what to do. But most certainly people in addiction don't like being told what to do. And I suppose if we come in with this agenda of this is what's going on and I'm telling you, you have a problem and you need to do something about this, that's just going to get their back up. They're getting defensive. And It sounds like it's more about you as the person, you know, saying it to them than it's about their well-being, because it's almost like you're giving out to them for having this problem. But really, this problem is a a symptom of something deeper that's probably very painful for them. So it's about trying to have an open conversation with them and to get them, ask them questions. You know, do you think that that's the case? Or, you know, what do you think about it? Or, you know, how are you feeling that you're working more? Um, or you know, you're I've noticed you're on your phone a lot, you know. What do you be getting up to on that phone at all? You know, so you can even be a bit lighthearted about it, but you're trying to find a way to connect in with, you know, because a lot of addictions happen on our phones. So maybe you genuinely don't know what's going on, but you've noticed that your family member is a lot more cut off and they're on their phone all the time, and you're like, Okay, like they seem to be really moody. Is it a dating app they're on? Is it it love addiction? Is it sex addiction? You know, are they looking at porn a lot in their room? You know, sometimes we don't necessarily know what the addiction is, but we just sense the, I suppose, the irritability and the fact that they're withdrawing and they seem to have changed. And so that would be in relation to the first one. It's just about opening up the conversation And planting a seed, if you like, and trying to maintain a relationship with them that they don't decide you're someone else to cut off now because you're going to threaten their addiction. Um, And really, their addiction is their number one relationship that feels like it's providing, then that's meeting their needs. So they're going to try to protect that. You don't want to set yourself up as someone who's against it. And in relation to the second one, you know, when there's someone who actively wants to, address their addiction that's a really great place to be Um, you can be really helpful as a a friend or family member in that situation and I suppose mostly encouragement Um, you know you're you're encouraging them you're there for them you can be a listening ear for them and you might open up the conversation with them around have you thought about you know what option you'd like to go um, for would you like to go for therapy? You know, and again, I, I really come back to the asking questions, asking them what they want, because I suppose uh, we talk about addiction as if being a family disease. Now, I don't necessarily like the word disease, but if you like, it's, it's a family issue. Um, so the person in the family who's presenting with the addiction, they can be seen as the problematic one. But as I said, you know, addiction doesn't happen in a vacuum. So often the person with an addiction is showing up issues in the family. And all I'm saying within that is that if you're a family member of somebody who wants to recover from addiction, it's important to be mindful of your role in the dynamic. So are you somebody who's been often getting over involved in the person with the addictions life? And had you previously been someone who enabled it? Do you need to step back and learn how to detach a bit and allow them on their journey of recovery whilst being supportive, but not trying to get too into it? And, you know, so there's there's a lot of that, I think, when you're a family member of someone with addiction or even a good friend, you know, that it can be really important to tap into a support group for yourself. So, you know, certain residential treatment centers, they will have family support groups which is great because you're you're sitting in with different family or or friends are also welcome um, of people with different addictions, so that can be helpful. But then you've got the twelve step ones as well. So I suppose the anon groups, so be it Al anon, Gam anon, and um, there's many different anon groups for specific addictions that you can also get support. And I think that not only helps you to know how to have boundaries that are supportive to the person with the addiction. But also boundaries that are supportive to you and knowing when you need to put yourself first because you, you know, you, we cannot predict whether you will meet a relapse along that road for that loved one. And that loved one may have a slip, but you know, you still have to take care of yourself because if your life is depending on that person being in recovery or you're putting too much value on that. Um, well, that's go- not going to serve you. Yeah,
1: I mean, I could, I have so many questions, and I could talk to you forever, but we are kind of tight on time. If people, I, what I love about your service is that it isn't—it's uh, a non-structured fee because sometimes the price of support can often lock people out of getting it. And um, if people feel like they need your service, or they're just curious about whether or not this thing that's happening for them is a problem, where can they reach you, or how can they how can they get in touch?
0: Yeah, so we have a website, it's letsgettalking.ie and there's also a national line, it's And So in terms of the branches, we also have a number of face-to-face branches, as well as offering online and telephone therapy, especially through the pandemic. That's ongoing, but we also have a few centres. So there's a centre in Galway, there's a centre in Dublin. There's a centre in uh, the Midwest which caters for people in County Clare and Limerick, and we also have a centre in Kerry. So we do plan to continue to expand and have centres across the country. But right now, that's where the face-to-face services are. So if you just give us a call, um, pop us an email, or fill in the contact form on the website, uh, you'll hear from somebody pretty quickly. Um, I suppose we really look at ourselves as a service that straddles the line between public the public services, which always unfortunately have quite a long waiting list um, and private sector where it's often unaffordable. So I suppose at the moment our waiting list would be a few weeks and we try to get back to everyone as soon as possible, even just with a first assessment.
1: Great. Thank you so much, Grace. Um, it's been amazing. That is it for today's episode. If anything in that episode you found Curious or you want to follow up with more information there are or, or you've identified a problem with yourself, you can you can go to Grace's organization or there are other supports available to you thank you so much for listening for those of you who are Headstuff Plus members there's bonus material there at the moment just for you alone um, so go over and find that there and if you want to become a Headstuff Plus member and you want to support the podcast it's five euro a month and you get extra bonus material extra podcasts and Zooms with me where we interact and, and, and have the crack so thank you so much for listening another week has gone our graphic design is by Kahalo our music is by Only Ruin Alan Bennett is my producer and we are part of the Headstuff Podcast Network. Thanks for listening.
0: This show is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network, a hub for the creative and the curious. Shows are produced in association with Headstuff and the podcast studios Dublin. Find out more or become a member at headstuffpodcasts.com.